Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome, welcome. We're doing another nose from confinement. Uh, and with us today are Carolyn Payne, uh, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance, other things besides that even. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. And one of the things we've been doing is doing kind of a deep dive uh, into late night television. I wanted to do something on the nose, as I said before, where people who are out of work and having to maybe drop some of their pay subscription things, you know, stuff that you could just sort of get regularly. So, yeah, we're going to talk about Saturday Night Live's foray into confinement-based comedy. Uh, We're going to talk uh, about what some of the late-night hosts are doing uh, to either exploit or be exploited by their terrible situation right now. We're also, you know, we've never, we missed several waves of, uh, on upon which the comedy series uh, Fleabag surfed, uh, and we've never talked about Fleabag. So, uh, but now there's a, a revival of the original live version monologue of Fleabag. We're going we're to talk about that too. But we're going to begin. You know, this is how you find out these days is that somebody has died. Uh, there's a name trending over on the right side of Twitter, and you go, uh oh. Uh, in this case, it was Brian Dennehy, uh, the wonderful um, actor. Uh, he was born in Bridgeport. He lived uh, in eastern Connecticut for a lot of his life. He seemed to be living in New Haven at the time. He died of 81. He didn't die of coronavirus. Uh, and just, you know, the first thing that happened to me was I started looking at the obits uh, that flowed up on Twitter after I clicked the thing. And it said, Brian Dennehy. Tommy Boy and First Blood star dies at 81. (laughs) Rambo, First Blood, and Tommy Boy actor Brian Dennehy dead at 81. I'm just reading a whole series of They're all the same. They all mention Tommy Boy and First Blood. I mean, just before, I'll shut up in a second. But if I made the argument to you that Brian Dennehy was the foremost and most acclaimed male stage actor of the last 25 years, you'd have a hard time contradicting me, I think. I mean, not only does he have two Tonys to his name, but he's got every other award in the world. And, and he, you know, he was a marvelous character actor in film and on television. He worked constantly. Um, and But, I mean, his stage work is uh, I don't know who you would even put up against him over the last 25 years. Um, and so, but when you die, <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. When you die, they mentioned Tommy Boy. So I don't know. Carolyn, I get the feeling that uh, Jonathan McPants, uh, our producer, thinks I'm, <laughs> he thinks I'm a big old snob. Uh, am I a big old snob? I mean, probably. Sure. <laughs> Actually, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what makes you lovable. Um, so... I guess if if I'm being honest and you asked me to name a movie that Brian Dennehy was in, Mm -hmm. I would probably say Tommy Boy first, Mm -hmm. Uh, with second being the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet. So, yeah, uh, I I guess I I am as bad as all that. (laughs) I I didn't I, I don't know if I have seen him in many movies, but. Uh, as I did tell you in email, I was lucky enough to have seen him in Death of a Salesman on Broadway when I was in high school. Um, and 
I so I really had great respect for him as an actor from that perspective. And I kind of just because of that, I sort of always associated him as a stage actor, knowing that he had done a lot of stuff at like Long Wharf and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I didn't I went on IMDb and looked at his, you know, film credits and everything. But there were a lot of movies I just never even seen. Right. So um, I have to say, I have never seen Tommy Boy. When I saw it, uh, it in the headline, I thought it might be an Adam Sandler movie. I am incorrect. It's a Chris Farley movie. Uh, so, same I thing. Mean, yeah, you, th you thought yeah. the same thing. Okay. Close. So, but Bill, this, are, this kind of comes up, I think, and it is one of the ways in which the press covering the arts struggles sometimes. You know, I mean, you, particularly mm -hmm. with something like an obituary where you're summing up somebody's life, you, you probably want to give a pretty accurate summing up of who the person was. And that bumps up against what the person might be remembered for by the person who knew the least about the deceased. And so that's always the argument for Tommy Boy and Rambo. Uh, and there's kind of an argument going the other way, too. I don't know. Where do, where do you fall on this spectrum? Well, first, I, I want to point out how Carolyn snuck in that she was in high school in the 90s, <laughs> which I thought was just really mean to you and me. But yeah. we can settle that out of class. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Um, I think that it's it's almost like you they're doing like this thing where are you going to talk about it quantitatively or are you going to talk about it qualitatively? So if you're going to talk about the person uh, quantitatively, it's like, well, you kind of rank things. And, you know, when you're doing that inver inverted pyramid style, you rank things in the order, you know, the most people saw this. I am pretty sure more people saw um, Tommy Boy than Long Day's Journey into Night, right? So you, you, you rank it that way. Obviously, if you're going to flip it qualitatively, then it becomes something really different. I was, I was really struck when I went back and looked a little bit because obviously the name is really familiar and immediately – you know, that big face, that big ruddy face pops into mind. I didn't realize quite how prolific he was. I mean, this guy rivals Samuel L. Jackson for numbers of credits. And he just did, he was just always working, did a tremendous amount of stuff. And like Carolyn, um, my most vivid memory of him is in Death of a Salesman, actually. And because what I had found so remarkable about that, you know, Brian Dennehy was a really, really big guy, a right. really massive guy who actually went to uh, Columbia to play football. Uh, but I had always pictured Willie Loman as this small, hunched over, you know, beaten down, you know, kind of uh, small man. And yet even in his massive physical figure, Brian Dennehy was really able to inhabit that sense of, of being crushed by the weight of the world. And so I think that's what I'll always remember most significantly about him. Right. He uh, said uh, of himself, I don't look like an actor. I don't sound like an actor. I'm just another person, which is really the whole point of acting 
is trying to be just another person, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which I, I think kind of sums up what you're saying. I the same reaction. No way can he be Willie Loman, but he, he's he's kind of somehow or other bent himself to the task and bent the task toward him. I also wanted to just quickly read from the obituary in the Irish Times uh, this quote he he said in 2018. He said, "I've had a hell of a ride. I have a nice house." I haven't got a palace, a mansion, but a pretty nice, comfortable home. I've raised a bunch of kids and sent them all off to school, and they're all doing well. All the people that are close to me are reasonably healthy and happy. Listen, that's as much as anybody can hope for in life. And to me, that's also, I mean, I, I love reading that. I love, there, there was, he was on, he appeared on our show one time, and it was kind of a, almost kind of a surprise booking, a last minute thing where he popped up. I can't remember what we were talking about, but I don't think he was a particularly pretentious guy. And he played these roles. Yeah, we first saw him as the sheriff in First Blood. And then there was this kind of burst of stuff. Gorky Park, Silverado, Presumed Innocent, Cocoon. You just started seeing him a lot in stuff. Yeah, that Romeo and Juliet uh, in, in 96. And, and yeah, he was a tremendous character actor. And then from all accounts, and I only saw him on stage once just overpoweringly brilliant on stage so yeah it's just a loss and 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 maybe he's a little bit more than tommy boy oh no now i feel like should i watch tommy boy i mean is there, i mean is you there, have no. nothing better to no. do <laughs> well i do have things better to do i absolutely have better things to do i will tell you i would choose tommy boy over first blood oh, any I don't day know. I, I actually, I'm actually very tempted to go, go rewatch First Blood. Actually, oh, um, just my my <laughs> political soul does not let me watch any of the Rambo movies. I know, but there, there's there's something to be said for great bad movies. I mean, look, there's one of the most politically incorrect guys in the world in the world of Hollywood is John Milius, and Red Dawn is you know the original Red Dawn is such an expression of his particular brand of political paranoia. But it's really enjoyable too. It's I mean it's a terrible movie, but it's really fun to watch. You know, the, I'm talking about the Patrick Swayze version. It's just uh, wonderful. So sometimes you just watch movies. You know, you know it's wrong. You know, true. But you that's do like everything often, I often watch. The things yeah. I have, yeah, often the things we have to watch for this. Yes. To, yeah. To be honest with you. you no, know, yeah. Carolyn. Carolyn has the opposite experience. She goes, "This feels so right. Should I do it?" Uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like everything I, I am drawn to watch it. Like Tommy Boy is something like if it was on TV, I'd be like, "Ooh, Tommy Boy. But most of the stuff that we have to watch for the nose, I'm like, oh, that feels like effort. That's some highbrow stuff. You guys <laughs> right. tried to get me to watch Death Wish once. <laughs> but the remake, actually, to make it even worse. Yeah, I think we we all kind of actually booted ourselves. We revolted. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit. But obviously, uh, uh, so sad about Brian Dennehy. Uh, he has stuff in post production, which means he was, you know, working uh, close, quite close to the end. Uh, but a, a huge talent, and he will be missed. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, comedy soldiers on in a whole bunch of different forms. Here, we're going to start by talking about something very unusual that happened last Saturday night. Saturday Night Live attempted to do a version of itself without anybody being there, like without anybody being in the usual studio where Saturday Night Live is done in Rockefeller Center. So um, it was hosted by. Tom Hanks. What hosting amounted to in this situation is probably not very much. But Kat, uh, let's just play the clip of Hanks opening the show. Hey, it's good to be here, though it is also very weird to be here hosting Saturday Night Live from home. It is a strange time to try and be funny. 
but trying to be funny is SNL's whole thing. So we thought, what the heck? Let's give it a shot. <laughs> but why me as host? Well, for one, I have been the celebrity canary in the coal mine for the coronavirus. And ever since being diagnosed, I have been more like America's dad than ever before, since no one wants to be around me very long, and I make people uncomfortable. Now, this Saturday Night Live is going to be a little different. For one thing, it has been filmed entirely by the SNL cast, who are currently quarantined in their homes just like this. Well, I mean, not, not like this home. I mean, their homes are a little more like... You know what, I'm going to let you be the judge of that. Also, there's no such thing as Saturdays anymore. It's just every day is today. All right, so, and then we began. And obviously, yeah, it was pretty impossible to get anybody together, uh, get more than one person in one place. So, uh, Carolyn, we'll start with you. Uh, you've got the, the comedy career here. Uh, how, how did this work? I, I mean, obviously, it was uneven. That was to be expected, just as Tom Hanks had warned us. Uh, what did and didn't work? Well, I guess for me, my favorite was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or the Middle Age Mutant Ninja Turtles. I just loved that concept because uh, that kind of fell like right. I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were that that's of my era. And uh, there was something funny about that sketch and and it worked that worked so well because it was just a cartoon that had voiceover so then I found myself saying like well that's kind of a cop-out to say that I enjoyed that the most because it was the easiest to transition into this kind of humor um there are sketches you know of all the topical things some of it was like just cringeworthy which I kind of grown to expect with SNL at this point um, where it just, the sketch starts out and has the right idea and then just becomes, I think Bill said this too, it just, it, it just kind of implodes into that silly, um, like the RVG workout and the Zoom sketch. But then there were things that really, that did work for me, like the sports, you know, watching the banana, which banana is going to rot first, which literally has happened in my house. Like we have had that discussion over the past couple of weeks. So the things that were relatable um, on that on that level, I felt worked, you know, it, it worked well. There were things that worked and things that didn't. I wasn't laughing out loud at anything, really. Uh, I and, and for me, one of the I think the most cringeworthy thing for me, and I understand that their hearts were in the right place with this was during Weekend Update, where they had the uh, they basically like had friends or somebody just people laughing over Zoom that were listening mm. in. And I understand that want and that need as a comedian. That laughter is like, that's your gasoline that keeps you going. <laughs> you know, that's their fuel. But for me, that just was, it, it just, it didn't, I don't know. It didn't work quite right. Um, Bill, as a media studies uh, professor, you're going to be interested. I mean, one thing about the the Ninja Mutant Turtle thing, it almost looked like something that they had in the can uh, right. going into this. It didn't really sort of reflect the situation at all. You kind of want to see what people do under these circumstances. They don't have the usual set of tools. They don't have the usual pipeline through which Saturday Night Live comedy historically has has uh, flowed. So, so what drew your attention uh, one way or another? Um, I did think 
you know, like you all did, that it was very, very spotty. A um, couple good moments, a lot of just kind of, you know, meh kind of stuff. But I've also felt like that for Saturday Night Live for a really long time, actually. And so I'm not sure this was any more spotty than any of the um, more recent years have been in terms of that show. I think that, and we're going to see this with, with all of these late night comedy shows that are, that are trying to soldier on, you know, the technology does make a real difference. And I think they're really struggling with how to make it look as slick as possible when they're, they don't have the tools. They don't have the people who are experts at those tools. John Oliver did a uh, thing where he was, you know, talking um, to um, Stephen Colbert about how they had to like teach him um, remotely how to do some of the stuff that he usually relies on his producers to do, and that that obviously represents like a real technological challenge. Having said that, I think there's some things that they did pull off. Um, I really liked the uh, Bailey at the movies skit. Mm -hmm. um, normally that's on part of the weekend update thing, but now she was just a girl in her room doing like her YouTube channel. That felt very authentic to me in terms of how awkward those YouTube channels really are. Um, the other one that I think probably was already ready to go was the rap song about $2,000. I've got $2,000. It looks, you know, and the, the whole thing of the show uh, of the song that they were mocking is that when you scatter around $2,000, making it rain like you do in a rap video, it looks like a lot of money, but $2,000 is not a lot of money. And I, that probably was already done, I would think, but it, I couldn't help but think about these stimulus checks that are coming out and actually, you know, what a small amount of money people are really getting because of that. Um, so that worked for me too. And there were a couple things here or there that worked. See, I, I feel like, well, first of all, there's a, a term that I, I've, learned was we, as we prepared for the show front-facing comedy which is you know kind of direct to camera comedy there's mm -hmm. a there's a mostly ignored new second tier player at saturday night live named chloe Feynman, uh who you don't see very much uh and although uh earlier in this in the um series uh, I saw her do a couple of pretty good political impersonations, unfortunately, of candidates who dropped out. <laughs> um, so uh, we saw her here. It turns out, actually, she kind of made her bones on Instagram, doing a lot of stuff on Instagram, which is obviously front-facing, direct-to-camera. And she did kind of a funny uh, parody of those masterclass things that pop up on YouTube all the time. And she was Timothy Chalamet, and she was... Uh, uh, who's the woman from, from Tiger King? I'm blocking her name. How, how could I forget? Carol her Baskin. Yeah, Carol Baskin. <laughs> thank you. So um, I, I thought you know it was nice to see her exhibit some of her skills. These young players who join, they often they don't have the writers behind them. They don't have the uh, producers behind them. Uh, they have trouble getting their stuff in the pipeline. But she could do something direct to camera on her own. I thought she did a nice job with it. And I'm also really interested in that. There's uh, two comedy performers and writers, Beck Bennett and Kyle Mooney, who joined. 
uh, at the same time, and they had been partners in the past. They come up came up with this very interesting thing that used FaceTime and kind of rhythmic repetitions of their various expressions of comedy writer's block. Uh, you know, what are you working on? What are you cracking on? And they kind of turned it into a little musical rhythmic thing, brought Fred Armisen in at the last minute. Now, I thought that was clever because it took some of the the actual production problems. You, you also look for somebody who's doing judo, you know? You take the weakness mm-hmm. and turn it right. into mm-hmm. a strength. And I, I thought they, they kind of did that. Um, I do want to play one clip. The clip that made me laugh really hard uh, was, in fact, from Weekend Update. Uh, there's a thing. There's a couple of little tropes on Weekend Update these days. If you don't watch Saturday Night Live, Colin Jost is the white, uh, and he's he's like just very white, uh, host of Weekend Update. Michael Che is African-American. Um, they give each other a, a lot of uh, hassles about this, and there's a lot of uh, efforts to make Jost look like some kind of horrible racist. And they have a tradition that they've done, I think, in, on their Christmas shows, where they write jokes that they're going to make the other person do on the air, sight unseen, no forewarning. So they did it this week on a Weekend Update, or Che uh, it totally ambushed Jost, it looked like, with this idea. Here's what that sounded like. As you know, Colin, I, I lost my grandmother this week. And uh, her favorite part of the show was when we would do joke swap. You have no idea, but <laughs> I had Pete uh, send you a joke and your email if you could just open up and read it. <laughs> she would really like this. Yeah, she would like, okay, great. Well, for her then, I'll say this, great. <laughs> Two professors at the University of Oklahoma have been cited for using the N-word in class. <laughs> in their defense, the students were being pretty lazy. My grandmother has never seen this show. I just wanted you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> She woke up at like 4 a.m. dude to pray. If you think she was watching Saturday Night Live, never. But I really appreciate it. That made this night perfect, man. Thank you. Oh, man, for Weekend Update, I'm Martha's grandbaby. (laughs) I'm Colin Jost. Good night. So, Bill, I often do like... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, just the way he pranked him was really great. And, and Carolyn, I mean, I, I do often enjoy humor that plays a little bit on other people's discomfort. You know, the, the joke was basically the, that Colin Jost had to say such a horrible joke. Um, and for and, I, I, and once again, we could hear that laugh track that you didn't like. It wasn't a laugh track. It was just people laughing on Zoom in the background. Um, and I actually thought it, it, it actually enhanced that particular joke anyway, because you could say that of, moment yeah. worked uh, for the laugh track some of the rest of the time I just found it annoying um but I I loved that moment and there was something very like genuine about that with his tribute to his grandmother and pranking uh <laughs> and the, I mean it that that moment I I will even though weekend update I thought was one of the weakest segments for me that moment I I I did like there was uh I I love any I love a prank I love whenever you can like get somebody to I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> when you can get somebody to do something that you know they just don't want to do, um, so I I liked that. I felt like there should have just been more genuine interchanges between. 
I, I don't know. I felt like that was my problem. There was a lot of stiffness with this. And I think it was because a lot of the uncertainty of how to make to make this work and to break those the the like break the binds of technology, really. Right. That's a, that, that is a terrific point. We're going to take a little break here. That's a perfect bridge. We're going to talk about other kinds of late night comedy from this week. And, and I do think the way that you just expressed that was per, was perfect. And I want to hear what Bill has to say about it. To me, it's one of the determining factors on whether you can work in this weird environment or not. So we're back with the nose with Carolyn Payne and Bill Usman. So the other group of people who typically perform not live live, but in front of a live audience, taped live in front of a live audience and do it on a pretty rigorous schedule are the hosts of late night comedy. Although there's some of these shows are once a week like John Oliver, but there's others like Colbert and Kimmel are quite used to having to do four or five shows per week. Uh, and they don't have any of their typical resources. They are in their homes. They are often be, being assisted by members of their family. Uh, and yet, you know, their audiences, this is a time they really don't want to be without their favorite late night host if they have that kind of relationship. So uh, we kind of poked our noses into that. Uh, Bill Usman, I'll have you uh, start us off, although I'm thinking you might want to build on some of the stuff that Carolyn said at the end there, that idea of getting your humanity across as opposed to sort of letting the technology uh, dominate you. Yeah, I think. Um, I think some of the shows are, are really struggling with how to do that. You know, they're like kind of a deflated balloon. They're there, but they're, they, they don't have the same capabilities that they used to have. And so they're, you know, they're trying to find like all these different ways to, to make that work, to lean into it. I know Colbert did one where he was in a uh, bubble bath in his bathroom and he tried that out for size. I, you know, there's also the thing that we already mentioned with, which is, um, the, the absence of an audience, I think for a lot of them definitely seems to be making an impact. They don't have anyone to play off of. There's kind of an energy deficit. Um, you know, we could even hear it in that clip of the Tom Hanks intro, you, when you're used to it being a live audience and someone tells a joke and there's silence, you don't really necessarily think, oh, there's no audience. You think, oh, that joke didn't land. And I'm sure that they're kind of going through that um, as well. Um, I mentioned earlier that Colbert did an interview with John Oliver, who is the one who I, John Oliver is the is one who I think is, is somehow handling this best. And they were really, it was, you know, it was a very incestuous kind of conversation because they were really talking about what it means to be a late night comedy host while in isolation. But they played off of each other really well. They drew some energy from each other. At one point, Oliver said something like, I'm used to the silence. Even when the audience is there, they just sit there looking at me. So I don't miss it at all. <laughs> and that that really landed. That really worked. And, um, he does seem to have been one who has been able to lean into this and overcome it a little bit. 
Yeah, Carolyn, I mean, uh, as I was watching a lot of clips uh, today, I was thinking, you know, although they are all very similar in certain ways, I would kind of divide them into two groups. Uh, I I feel like with Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert, we're kind of watching them perform for a live audience when we're seeing their show regularly or perform for somebody anyway, uh, as opposed to kind of having a conversation with us. Jimmy Kimmel, I feel like, talks to us. John Oliver definitely talks directly to the camera seems to be less about the audience. And I think the more that you're like that latter kind of person, obviously you're going to be a little bit more comfortable in an audience-free environment. But, but Carolyn, what are your perceptions about this? Well, I agree. I, I think that uh, I don't watch really a lot of late night shows. I sometimes tune into Samantha B. Um, she's, and uh, I think one of the funniest things that I have seen in preparation as everyone transitioned into this uh, live, these these live from home shows or taped from home. Samantha B did this trailer where she had her kids holding cue cards and uh, she said, I should be doing math homework with them, but instead I'm making them work for me. And <laughs> it, it just made me laugh because she really played up the totally bizarre circumstances that these people are having to work from and and wanting to work from and and it's funny because i also know people kind of like myself who are on the fringes of the comedy business and are trying to like get noticed and it's, you know we spend a lot of time trying to cultivate audience by doing like front facing camera comedy or creating sketches at home or doing commentary and tweeting and things like that Uh, And now you're kind of in the same boat as a lot of these people. Uh, And that's interesting to me to watch to to watch them struggle with a lot of the same things that uh, comedians I know and that I've worked with and I'm trying to work with right now remotely that we're struggling with. Um, And it's and it's neat to see what they are succeeding at. And it is also uh it's there's like a comfort in seeing seeing the the fails uh not like you want to see anyone fail but like understanding that this is just a hard time and it's a weird time to want to be funny to feel this need to perform and make people laugh uh it's hard it's a conflicting it's Mm -hmm. i think it's a conflicting time for that you know uh bill another thing that late night comedians have always done is make fun of whoever is the president of the united states in the era of (laughs) donald trump it's just a bigger job right it's making fun of him but it's often kind of fact checking him and obviously the more policy oriented shows like trevor noah and the daily show like john oliver they are seriously always involved in fact checking him and meanwhile he is giving one of the most bizarre and unstructured daily performances of anybody right now and uh, it's interesting to watch all these hosts a kind of feast on the carcass of those daily briefings but also struggle with like how do you how do you get a comic take on somebody who's already so far outside the bounds of normalcy that it's it's you know they've they've already gone a place that you wouldn't have gone if you had all day to think about it oh yeah i mean on these daily briefings when he you know inevitably it gets to the point where he's just having a temper tantrum and just fighting with the reporters just like flat out fighting with them and calling them insulting names that is so 
unbelievably absurd during any time, but especially during a time when we're trying to deal with this and figure it out, that there's no way that comedy could could trump that. Uh, oh, oops. Um, it, just in terms of the the level of ab- absurdity. So so what what do you do with that? How do you how do you handle that? The, I think you're right that the more politically oriented ones, um, it's it's easier for them to to dig right into that. And the other thing that I was thinking is that with shows like Trevor Noah or John Oliver that were kind of set up as a parody newscast to begin with, I think it's a little easier for them also because you don't have those, that same anticipation of a newscast having, you know, an audience there or, you know, doing the kind of interactive things that comedians do. So I think that's made the transition for them a little easier as well. And it just seems to kind of be in their natural wheelhouse to be taking on this absurdity that's coming out of the white house. Right. I will say Jimmy Kimmel, who I I think has this almost, you know, uh, uh, rather than being an adolescent mocking the president, he's like a grown up talking about a child when he talks about the president, but he kind of veered out of his nice guy lane this week. Everybody had to come up with a joke about Trump wanting his name on the stimulus checks that people are receiving. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy Kimmel's line was, it's the dumbest thing he's put his name on since Don Jr., uh, which is a, it's a very mean joke, but but also a very funny one. All right, we have to. I'm being told by Jonathan McPants we have to switch gears yet again over to flea bag, not the flea bag, the episodic flea bag that you know and presumably love, uh, but in fact uh, a version of it done uh, as part of a, the, a series at the National Theater. Uh, it is being made available on Amazon. It is the source material for uh, that Phoebe Waller Bridge drew upon to create the series Flea Bag. It was a one-person monologue that. She she had done in various venues, including, uh, I guess, one of the Fringe Festivals. Uh, so you're seeing, actually, not something she did after the success of Fleabag, but, but before it. So, um, Carolyn, maybe just very quickly for people who are non-initiates, uh, maybe we could just set up Fleabag a little bit uh, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She's kind of inescapable these days, but some of our listeners may have escaped her. Honestly, Bill might be the better one to do this. He's the one who's, uh, Bill, you've seen right, a yeah. lot of the show, right? Bill, yeah, Bill, you give us the setup. Yeah, so um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, British comedian, writer, actor. Um, it started out, it actually, what we're focused on today is actually how it started out as this stage show, as this one-woman show. Um about this character who has no other name, to the best of my knowledge, other than Fleabag. You never find out what her actual name is. And she's a woman who is really struggling with love and connection and finding her way in life and, you know, just her her deep deep desire to connect with with other people and to and to find uh romance and love and sex let's you know it's 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 very straightforward and almost raunchy at times as you might expect from the title and then it became 
uh, a television show. There's been two seasons that kind of take what was happening in the one woman show and then, you know, break it out into that multidimensional way. So now there are other characters that she had just talked about. Um, and there's different set settings and scenes. And so it really just kind of enriches and puts extra wardrobe on what had started as a very stark kind of performance. Um, how did it work for you, Carolyn? Uh, we're, we're talking now about, yes, this is a person sitting on a stool, uh, surrounded by darkness, a spotlit on, on a stage, no supporting cast whatsoever. She's got to hold the audience's attention for about 70 minutes. Uh, how did she do? You know what? For me, she nailed it with this. I have watched the show uh, very sparsely. Like I, I kind of checked into it because I kept hearing about it and um, but I couldn't get hooked into it. And the funny thing with this for me was as soon as I put it on, I was drawn right in. Um, I, I really was just floored by how engaging of a storyteller she was. Uh, I mean, it is like one part stand up comedy, one part, almost the way she uses her voice at times where it has this like beat poetry rhythm. And then there's, you know, that one part like solo heavy drama work on stage. And I mean, I was entertained for the whole time, which for me is saying a lot, especially because I watched this in the middle of the night. Um, so I really... I, I was just so wowed with her as a performer and what she created with this. Um, it has made me kind of think like maybe I will revisit the series and rewatch it uh, and feel differently. But you know what? I kind of felt like she I liked her better being the only character. To me, that was kind of what sold it. It was very magical and, 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 uh, and transformative the way she sort of just created this world. Uh, I was really, I, I was really impressed by this. All right. Well, let's hear a little bit of this. This is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Uh, she is speaking. This is near the beginning of the 70 minute monologue. Uh, she's talking about her boyfriend, Harry, with whom she breaks up periodically. Most recently, uh, he has uh, cleaned out everything of his that was in, in their place, including everything in the refrigerator. Here is what she has to say. I do admire how much Harry commits to our breakups. The fridge is a new detail, but he does always go the extra mile. A few times, he's even cleaned the whole flat. Like it's a crime scene. <laughs> I've often considered timing our breakups when the flat needs a bit of a going over, but <laughs> I never know what's going to set him off. Keeps me on my toes. I sit on the loo. Think about all the people I can have sex with now. I'm not obsessed with sex. I just can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> The performance of it, the awkwardness of it, the drama of it. The moment you realize someone wants your body. Not so much the feeling of it. I reckon I got about a week before Harry gets back, so better get on it. Into the shower, boom, bedroom, makeup, boom, gonna really make an effort. I take half an hour trying to look nice and I end up looking amazing. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Bill, I, I wanted to sort of agree uh, with what Carolyn said. This this is sort of a different kind of job, too. You really have to do everything. And boy, the way she uses her face, her pauses, uh, the way that she sets up certain premises, and then very skillfully, once again, having nothing at her. She doesn't have Olivia Coleman to play off of as her stepmother, uh, having nothing but her own tools. She really just pulls some tremendous comic and dramatic effects uh, out of this thing. So Bill, I'm on board with Europe. both yeah. with both of you about that. Yeah. And um, my wife and I both kind of felt that it started out a little slow, you know, because it is just her on this stark, empty stage. But I think it ends up pretty remarkable, actually. And both the comedy, but also the, the, the poignancy of it. You mentioned her pauses. She uses silence so well and in those silent moments it becomes the seriousness of what she's talking about her alienation becomes very very real um i thought there was a great line in uh, a times review of it that said think virginia wolf cross-pollinated with amy schumer <laughs> and i thought that that that's that's a really good way of framing it she's obviously very smart and introspective Clearly, there's something autobiographical going on here, but she's also very, very witty and very, very funny. Um, in some ways, it, it, it's different, but in some ways, it kind of reminded me of that Hannah Gatsby special, Nanette. In I that, was thinking the same thing. Right? Yeah. I don't know if I were on the same um, um, episode of The Nose that talked about that, Carolyn, but you know, it's it, it, it does the same kind of thing where it starts with, with the humor and then lulls you into something that becomes very, very serious. She doesn't have that level of anger that Hannah Gadsby has, but she does have this, this, this uh, uh, a core um, at the center of all this, which, which I found very powerful. Yeah, although I will say, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a lot funnier than Hannah Gadsby, at least based on these these two things that she, 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 she's a little wittier, you know, there's just that sharp edged wit that she has. Yeah. And it's a softer there. It well, it's softer, but yet she has that, she has that like tart edge. But, uh, I think the big difference, like you mentioned that Hannah Gadsby has that, th that anger at her core, there's kind of this sadness at the core here. Yeah, um, I agree. That makes it there. There's a, a sweet, raw relatability there with that. Um, and I, I mean, her just everything about this performance. I went into this kind of not expecting to really be able to latch on to this, uh, but it is well worth it. And I think it's also pretty cool that they're donating the proceeds. You have to buy this on Amazon Prime. Um, and they're donating the proceeds um, to coronavirus relief organizations, correct? Right. That's um, mm -hmm. so it's, it's five dollars or four pounds, um, depending on where you're living. Uh, and uh, yes, it, it goes to frontline uh, coronavirus relief organizations. There's a lot of the 
that kind of stuff going on in the world of comedy. Mike Birbiglia is doing this thing. I think it's called Please Tip Your Waiter, where he mm-hmm. and some high-profile comedian have a conversation, uh, and they're somehow or other raising money at the same time on Instagram for a particular comedy club that's obviously lights out right now. Uh, and those 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 are very interesting too. They involve people kind of trying out jokes. People like John Mulaney and Roy Wood Jr. All right, we have to take a little break, so we'll have time to do some recommendations on the other side. So stay with us. All right. Yes, I have to thank uh, Kat Pastor, who, uh, who's there on the soundboard right now in the studio, making the whole thing work. Uh, so the rest of us are working remotely. Uh, obviously, she's doing a great job, and obviously, we are very grateful to her. Jonathan McPants produced this particular episode of The Nose. We'll be back with a whole week of new shows next week, starting with The Scramble on Monday, where Betsy Kaplan and I will be building that over the weekend uh, based on the news of the weekend. So um, let's hear some recommendations. Uh, Bill, you why don't you go first? Okay. Um, I'm going to go a little more serious with my endorsements today. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, I keep tacking back and forth between just wanting entertainment and some distraction, but then also wanting to really kind of dig in and, and really fully understand what's happening. So I'm going to recommend two books. Um, one is a new book um, by someone who has been on the Colin McEnroe show, Sarah Kenzior, and it's called hiding in plain sight, the invention of Donald Trump and the erosion of America. And she goes back in through the last few decades, um, to really kind of both explain Trump's deep background and then what was happening in America that allowed him to become uh, the president of the United States. And it's a, it's a blazing indictment. And she's also a really terrific writer. So it really drew me in. So that's, um, hiding in plain sight by Sarah Kenzior. And then the other one is, uh, it came out in two, 2018, but I think it is so relevant right now. It's by Michael Lewis. It's called the fifth risk. And it's about um, the Trump administration's neglect of government and, in fact, their hostility to government and what happened with the lack of a transition and the way all of these government agencies went unstaffed. And I think it actually tells us a lot about what we're dealing with right now and why it's so much worse than it needs to be. So that's The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. I should say, yes, Sarah Kenzior has been on our show quite a few times, and we are in negotiations with her right now about when she's going to come back. We're trying to pick exactly the right moment uh, because Sarah, <laughs> the audience is already pretty freaked out, and Sarah can freak you out even more with some of the things, uh, some of the points she makes. So, Carolyn, oh, yeah. Dane, what, what have you got for us? Okay, so obviously in quarantine, you are just sitting around with you know, some extra time, most likely. Although this week I felt insanely busy for someone who couldn't leave the house. Um, But I am a huge Sopranos fan. Uh, To me, that has always been just one of one of the best shows ever created. And my roommate who I'm in quarantine with, he had never seen it. So I took this opportunity to rewatch 
to rewatch and introduce him to it. And uh, every time, this is probably the, the third time now that I've kind of gone through and revisited this. And it just is shockingly good. So I am just wholeheartedly going to recommend if you have not watched The Sopranos or if you did watch it, it now is a great time to revisit it. Um, especially knowing that they are coming out with the film with James Gandolfini's son. Uh, but it, it there to me, it's almost like comfort. It, it is like comfort TV, which sounds so bizarre that a show <laughs> about a monster, <laughs> a monster mob mobster is a comforting uh, show. All but, right. Um, uh, well, you get no argument from uh, either me, uh, and I bet you wouldn't get any argument from Bill either. The no, it's, it's great. Exactly. It's a great show about America also. <laughs> and there's a lot of it, too, so it can fill up your time for a while. That's what I'm saying. You know, yeah. commit to something that you know will take up some time here. <laughs> um, a, show that I, a show on Netflix that I found more gripping than I had expected to is Unorthodox. Uh, it, it contains a, a startling performance by a young actor named Shira Haas. Uh, she's an Israeli actress uh, in the lead role about a woman who who runs away from her Hasidic community and her Hasidic marriage in Williamsburg and shows up in Berlin. It's based on an actual memoir. Uh, it's four episodes, and once you start, you don't want to stop. Also, if you have a little bit of time and you can watch the Dave Chappelle Mark Twain Awards ceremony, some of the comedians that we talked about, like Michael Che and Colin Jost, are there, and they are being very funny, too. You have to really like Chappelle to want to explore him the way he's explored in this. But if you do, uh, give the Mark Twain Awards a shot. All right. Thanks so much to everybody, but especially to our two terrific panelists, Bill Usman, Carolyn Payne. We'll be back next week with more shows about more stuff, which is my way of saying I can't remember any of the topics we have coming. Getting on New Britain, Vernon. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on the radio.